Hello, uh, this is Ben Forstenzer with the Fictionist First podcast, and I'm very pleased to have Elizabeth Evitz Dickinson with me. Hello, Ben. And um, what is the name of this essay? So this essay is called Notes from a Suicide. Okay, so um, we're going to be listening to Elizabeth reading Notes from a Suicide, and we're going to be having a conversation about it, and I hope that you enjoy it. My father, the historian, could have started the story of my grandmother's death with this. Before she shot herself in the chest, we had one last phone call. But that's the writer in me, and my father, ever the scholar, refused to embellish. I was 26 when he told me. I had just moved west and was living 7,500 feet above sea level in a little house near the trailheads of the Sierra Nevada mountains with a boy I thought I might marry. I was well away from the East Coast, where my family and I had lived all of our lives, and where my paternal grandparents, whom I had never met, were buried. My father had flown in for an overnight visit on his way to an academic conference in San Francisco. I can't say if it was the distance from home or the act of releasing his daughter into adulthood that finally broke his silence, but that night we drank dark beer and looked out at the silver tip pines, and he began with only the facts. It was 1965. Lyndon B. Johnson was president because Kennedy was dead. In February, Johnson ordered Operation Rolling Thunder to hit the North Vietnamese with a steady assault of missiles and bombs. A month later, state troopers armed with billy clubs and tear gas confronted nonviolent civil rights marchers on the Edmund Pettus Bridge outside of Selma. The Voting Rights Acts became law in August. Congress recommitted to Social Security and created welfare and Medicaid. The Beatles sold out Shea Stadium. Watts ignited. So you just provided some historical context, which um, is critical and also makes a lot of sense because I know that your father was a historian. So that all makes a lot of sense. But there's even more historical context at that moment for what your grandmother was actually involved with. And if you could just touch a little bit on um, Wilmeth's experience with the Kennedy administration just briefly. Yeah, so um, it was interesting because one of the things I learned actually uh, later about Wilmeth is that in the 60s, she worked at the Labor Department and she was a secretary, of course, because that's, you know, what you did <laughs> as a woman at that era. You know, it was still a time where... Um, not a lot of women were in the upper echelons of the labor department, which is where she was working. But she was the assistant to uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan. And Moynihan, who of course went on to become the long-seated uh, senator from New York and was you know, a great uh, politician and, and a defender of social contract and um, a Democrat, he was tapped by Kennedy. Uh, in fact, later Johnson thought that Moynihan was too much of a Kennedy man for him. Yeah, and so, you know, Wilmeth was at the Labor Department working as an assistant to Moynihan for you know, the early 60s. She was there when Kennedy was assassinated. She was there in the chaos and tumult that followed. And, um, you know, I've recently been able to access the Moynihan archives at the Library of Cong Congress and have found the day planners that she kept. I found a photo of Wilmeth at the Labor Department, and it's this big round table, and it's like all of these important politicians and heads of departments, and Moynihan's there, 
And my grandmother's in the far off corner at a table by herself taking notes. That September, my father, 23, began his American History PhD program at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. My parents lived in a modest apartment off campus. Mom earned grocery money with a part-time job reading bubble chamber film at the Hopkins High Energy Physics Lab. My father got to October and stopped. He stood up from the couch and walked to the kitchen. I heard the wheeze of the refrigerator door, followed by the crisp clink of two bottle caps prying free and landing on the kitchen counter. He returned, handed me a fresh beer, and sat back down. He was quiet. I understood that the real story was on its way. I was up late studying, he said. Your mother was asleep and the phone rang. It was my grandfather, Charles, calling from a hotel room in Boston where he waited out another business trip. Charles had just had a disturbing phone conversation with my grandmother. She was agitated, disoriented. She had made threats about hurting herself. I need your help, he told my father. Can you call her? My grandparents lived on the second floor of an apartment building in Arlington, Virginia, just outside of DC, and about 45 minutes from where my parents lived in Baltimore. Dad dialed the number, and when my grandmother answered, he didn't recognize the voice. If given a tape of it, I would have been hard-pressed to identify the source, he said. My grandmother was angry and bitter, coherent though not entirely logical. Dad described the call as a monologue that he ineffectually interrupted by telling his mother that he loved her. He grew more and more desperate as the minutes passed. And when my grandmother finally barked at him, why are you badgering me? Why won't you just let me be? The best my father could muster was, because I'm afraid you're going to hurt yourself. Please don't do anything like that. My grandmother laughed entirely without humor. God damn me if you ever see me again, she said. And then she hung up. My father dialed again and again, but the line was busy. He woke my mother, and they debated what to do next. When my grandfather called once more to say that the episode had passed, my grandmother was calm. Charles told me that they made plans to go out to dinner the next evening, my father said. But when my grandfather checked in from Boston the following morning, my grandmother didn't answer the phone. My father skipped class, pulled mom out of work, and they sped down I-95 to Arlington. He parked behind the apartment complex where he had been raised, and he told my mother to wait in the car. He saw the bullet hole in the rear window. He found my grandmother in a wood rocking chair, the pistol thrown a few feet away from the recoil. The coroner placed time of death shortly after she lied to her husband about dinner plans. There was no note. You know, I know that you explain later that amongst other things, Wilmouth was comfortable with uh, weapons or with guns. But what does struck me is why there's a handgun in the apartment in Arlington. My grandfather actually collected guns. And he actually had um, a whole bunch of Civil War rifles. So he was a history nut. And, um, you know, he grew up shooting and my father actually grew up shooting. My grandfather would take him target practice on a regular basis. And um, Wilmeth learned to use a gun. I'm not sure when. I don't know if it's something that she grew up with or whether it was her husband Charles who introduced her to guns. Um, 
what's interesting about that particular night is, you know, everything was locked and Wilmeth somehow the night that she killed herself managed to find the keys to the locked ammunition box. And what's interesting is that my father mentioned that as we were talking that night in the mountains. And it struck me then that, well, they, why did he hide the key? Did he know something was going on with his wife? I grew up on the campus of a small all-women's liberal arts college tucked in the foothills of Virginia's Shenandoah Valley. My father taught American history out of a brick colonial revival built in 1914. The building edged a historic front quad on a postcard landscape of mature trees encircled by buildings with wide porches and rocking chairs. The spire of a chapel pierced the undulating horizon of the Blue Ridge like an Andrew Wyeth landscape come to life. The Vaviaculus read the college seal taken from the 121st Psalm, I will lift mine eyes unto the hills. It was the mid-1970s, the height of the equal rights movement, and the green of the ERA yes buttons pinned to backpacks and jean jackets was as prevalent as the green in those surrounding hills. When I was born in 1973, two of my father's students gifted me my first book. It was a bestseller called Any Woman Can, about sexual freedom for the modern woman. I still have it. The inscription reads, for baby Elizabeth, who will have the power to choose her own path. This is one of those books that I didn't know was mine until I was probably like in my 20s. And um, a few years ago, I pulled it off the shelf and saw the inscription and realized it was a gift for me, right? Mm -hmm. And in some ways, I wonder if the students also weren't giving it to my mother, you know, because uh. think about being a young faculty wife. You know, my mom was very 1950s about the world. She wanted to have like a silver set and like proper dinners. And I think she was really thrown a loop by the shifting roles of women in the 70s. Mm -hmm. Um, so I suspect it might have been they were trying to, like, you know, maybe give it to me, but also give it to my mom. Like, go ahead, Carol, read about sexual freedom. Uh -huh. um, and, you know, some of it is, you know, it talks about it's written by a guy. You know, the, you know, today they'd probably call it mansplaining, you know, where it's like, here's Wait, this it's, guy. It's, it's, it's any woman can and it's written by a guy. Yeah, it's any woman can. Any with woman it, can. And you have to know it has an exclamation mark. Any woman can exclamation, exclamation mark. mark. You know, in thinking about my grandmother and her life, obviously this book felt like an interesting, you know, bookend of our lives. Like, I'm born into a very different time. The college was exactly the kind of place my grandmother had been forbidden to go. Forbidden, perhaps, is too strong of a word. It implies passion and intent on the part of her Midwestern parents, as though they possessed a fervent disavowal of their daughter's desire for higher education. In truth, their decision was likely born out of indifference. It was a given fact, a truth as plain as the sun rising in the east and church on Sunday. Girls did not go to college. My grandmother's fatal flaw was being female. She had the audacity to be born a girl in 1917. My great-grandparents named her Wilmeth Alvina because it never occurred to them that they would have anything but a son or that they would need any name but William Alvin. Wilmeth had the further audacity to be brilliant. A high IQ, a National Honor Society induction, and a partial scholarship, however, were not enough to get her to college. 
she settled into marriage instead, and eventually into motherhood. She had one son, my father, whom she named William, perhaps as an homage, perhaps as a fuck you, and she moved house frequently because her husband's civil service job demanded it. Wilmeth grew into a beautiful redhead, tall and thin but strong. She drank her coffee black and her scotch neat, played a fierce game of Scrabble, insisted on being called mother, not mom or mommy or mama, and she knew how to handle a gun, which came in handy that time they lived in the wilds of Juneau, Alaska, but proved tragic later. To my knowledge, Wilma's parents never physically harmed her. Being ignored, though, having your inherent talents summarily dismissed because of your gender, must have been its own special abuse. Wilmeth was trapped. I was six years old before I remember my father speaking of my grandmother. It was a bright fall day. My brother and I ran through the yard, flopping in mounds of leaves. Dad pretended to chase us off with a rake. I burst from a pile, and the autumn sun must have honeyed my hair just so, highlighting the strawberry more than usual. I looked up at my father, his face suddenly still. Your grandmother was a redhead, he said. And it hit me. I had another grandmother. Not the raven-haired, flesh-and-blood one who arrived each holiday laden with gifts, but a different one, a strawberry blonde like me. Dad put the rake away, went inside and didn't speak of her again. My father made his living as a storyteller. He was not only a professor of history, but also an author. He focused on the most contentious and violent of times in American history, the 19th century and the Civil War. He illuminated the era by talking not just of the facts, but also of the motivations, the love and fear and hope that drove men onto battlefields like Antietam. Life is messy, my father would often say, as explanation for a confounding turn of events, and he meant it to be a salve, not a condemnation. That man aspires to constancy in spite of his capricious nature, that he attempts to tame his worst self in deference to a greater good, is perhaps the thing that attracted my father to history in the first place. My childhood was steeped in his stories, some true, some that he made up for my entertainment, others that he read at my bedside each night. He never shied away from difficult topics. When my older brother chose to write a seventh grade history paper on slavery, my father realized that there was little source material explaining such a complex history to a 12-year-old, so he wrote the book himself. Years later, I would run my fingers along the book spines in my middle school library to find the one with his name on it. My father was an eager raconteur, which is why, even as a very young girl, I found it odd that he seldom told stories about my grandmother. He rarely spoke of her. This planted the seed that something tragic had happened. I knew that she had died too young, but what had happened to Wilmeth? I dared not ask. I was never explicitly told that my father's past was off limits. His silence, however, conveyed that there were topics too powerful to talk about subjects too dangerous to broach. Wilmeth existed for me, nonetheless. I sometimes dreamt that she sat at the end of my bed and spoke to me. Her life and death were a mystery that haunted my childhood, and in the absence of her actual story, I wrote my own. 
Sometimes I imagined my grandmother as the heroine, the smart woman wrongfully accused, the witch burned at the stake by the violent masses, the misunderstood Joan of Arc speaking the truth. Other times I was the heroine. My grandmother had been kidnapped by a madman and held hostage on a secret island. I was Nancy Drew and had to find the clues and rescue her, the quest for the missing grandma. So there wasn't, um, there wasn't even a cover story. There wasn't some, there was nothing that they, there was no explanation for what had happened to your grandmother. There wasn't a cover story. There never was. And at some point I think when I knew to ask what happened to my grandmother, it, I just got the story that she died too young. And the thing about kids is kids are really tuned in. They're tuned in to everything going on in the world. They're really curious. Mm -hmm. They're particularly tuned in to your parents, right? Like your parents are your whole world at that moment. So I spent all of this time trying to tease out like what happened to my grandmother because clearly th this was something tragic. And I'd get these little bits and pieces of her like, oh, she loved black coffee or she loved to drink scotch. Uh -huh. And like I remember at one point my mom said, oh, she just drank so damn much coffee. And I thought in my young mind, because kids are terrible with non sequiturs, I'm like, oh, man, she was killed by caffeine. It was right. caffeine that killed her. Right. And then my dad drank coffee. I'm like, oh, my God, my dad's going to die because he's drinking so much right. coffee. Like, so there was no cover story. And, and I think on some level it had to do with my father's need to be able to tell it true. Like I think he didn't want to build a fake narrative and think about it. How do you do that as a parent? Like, how do you explain suicide? And I think in a lot of ways, he didn't want the end to be the only story. Uh -huh. That if he told me too young that she committed suicide. She's, she's like a boogeyman. She's defined as this. <clears throat> she ends up defined as like a terrible aberration, as this terrible tragedy, as opposed to this complicated story. Right. That there's more to it. That she was this rich and smart and bright and loving mother but she had a bad end. And so I think this is something that any family who's dealt with suicide and why so oftentimes suicide is shrouded in secrecy mm -hmm. because Joan Wickersham, the writer, wrote this beautiful book when her father killed himself called The Suicide Index and talks about that, just that no other form of death do we make the form of death the person. Uh -huh. Like you don't say, oh, I'm, he, he was a cancer. Right. Oh, he was a heart attack. Right. He, she was a suicide, and it's because we attribute such, you know, onus to how that ending happens that I think he struggled with how to be able to tell it true and not overshadow, even with a cover story. Yeah, not to, he, the last thing, he didn't want to simplify it. He, he didn't want it, her stuck in her ending. Yeah, exactly. Psychologists have a term for the stories that we create and share about ourselves. Autobiographical narratives. The best of these narratives not only place us in time and locale, but also speak of our emotions. Researchers study the difference between families who talk openly about the past and those who do not, and have found that those with autobiographical narratives rich in detail, not just about people, places, and events, but also about motives and feelings, have a stronger capacity to handle the tumult in their own lives. You can often gauge the resiliency of a person, these studies conclude, by how well a person understands the past and his or her relationship to it. Those reared in strong narratives have a clearer sense of self. 
What then of silence? That night in the Sierra Nevada mountains, the six-pack long gone, my father had looked drained by the time he finished his story. We hugged and said goodnight. I went to bed loaded with long-contained questions that I hadn't asked because I believed our conversation was just the beginning. Now that my father's silence about his family had been broken, more of his personal history would come. Only it never did. Dad shared a few more details about the chronology of his life over the years, but the silence closed back in. And then he died unexpectedly from pancreatic cancer when I was 37. My father, the storyteller. It was only in his death that I understood how much he kept secret. For a man so ardent about discourse, he remained mute on the most important topic. Silence, though, is not an uninhabitable vacuum. It is no black hole. The place where stories stop and silence starts becomes its own fertile ground. Other notions take root. A story grew in my childhood, one of my own devising. I believed from a young age that I was Wilmeth reincarnate. This idea was reinforced by the way my father sometimes looked at me, or in the rare breaches when he would say, you remind me of your grandmother today. So speaking of interesting um, internal narratives, um, where did the idea that you were actually your grandmother reincarnated, where did that come from? Yeah, so again, like going back to sort of the magical thinking of a child, right? So I'm probably seven, maybe eight. I, you know, that moment in the yard with my dad had already happened. So I knew that Wilmeth existed on some level. And my parents had this um, ceramicist over to the house for tea. So you have to realize it's like Appalachia in the 1970s, you know, we're in the Blue Ridge. And this woman was like everything you would expect of a potter in that day and age. She was like jangled bracelets, smelled like lavender, you know, this riot of hair. She was this like she was crazy and I loved her and we were sitting on the floor and I was sort of daydreaming when all of a sudden I remember her touching my shoulder and saying you you my sweet girl are an old soul Oh yes. The and old, I was like the old, yeah the old, soul. the old soul which like of course you know back then everybody was an old soul but I asked my dad about it later and I remember we were sitting outside you know looking out at the mountains and I said what did she mean by old soul and you know my dad answered with describing reincarnation for me and he explained how some people believed that and you know, we went on to have a conversation about, you know, Eastern religions and traveling souls and heaven and all of these things. And my father was agnostic. So he, you know, described all of this in a very, you know, historian sort of way. And I remember going to bed like maybe that night or another night. And I'm like, OK, I get it. I get it. Like something of Wilma's soul has leaked out into the universe and it waited to come to me. And now she's a part of me. And it's also to a certain extent. I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong the silence around her and the the blank space that she was inhabiting i feel like maybe it made it easier for for you to attach to her it's not like you picked someone who you knew more about or no, there were other deceased members of the family but she sort of was this mystery yeah and she you know she was this mystery and she was important to my father and my father was important mm -hmm. to me and, you know, I looked like her at the time and I, I was often told that our personalities were very similar. Um, and I just felt this connection to her in a way that felt very real. And I had dreams that I was sitting and talking to my grandmother. 
And this happened, you know, six, seven years old. You know, there are these notions of genetic memory and there's all kinds of conversations that come up when I tell people I had dreams about my grandmother in this way. And, um, you know, it kind of goes to like, what do you inherit? And, you know, she was very real to me at that age. Mm -hmm. I believed that I had to make amends for Wilmeth's truncated life. I would be healthy and normal. I would be smart and successful. Unlike my grandmother, I had the power of choice and I made hard ones. I chose not to marry that man in the Sierra Nevada mountains and to risk waiting for a different kind of love. I chose to be a writer, to work for myself, to buy a very old house and to tear it to the studs in order to bring it back to life. In a letter written to me a few years before his death, my father recounted these choices and he told me that I was brave. I had to be, you understand. Here, I had no choice. I had to prove what my grandmother might have become if given the chance. I had to show that it was merely thwarted opportunity and not biology that pulled that trigger. There are times, though, when I wonder if I got more from Wilmeth than strawberry hair and green eyes. There is a melancholy that can descend on me, a kind of ache. I stand at my kitchen sink washing dishes and I look out the window. It's that magic hour of evening when the sky honeys and drains to gray. The earth spins from the certainty of day to the honesty of night. And in that moment, I can slip into a mess. I feel the world shift around me and I know what it is to be unsatisfied and restless. Is this deep-seated longing, this disquiet, is it inherited? I click lights on against the growing dark. I can still make out the scarab-like leaves of the holly tree looming in the dusk before the world dissolves into darkness. My view outside is replaced by my lamp-lit reflection in the window, and there I am, a pale ghost floating in an ocean of black. What happened to Wilmeth? My father refused to ascribe an answer to her suicide in absence of the facts. Wilmeth left no clues, no diary. There was nothing of her last harrowing days. It shocks me now, my father told me, how little I understood what was going on despite the closeness between us. I still don't understand. Perhaps a fissure was there all along. A hairline fracture that began in the womb when cells divided under the wrong chromosome and continued to crack under the disdainful eye of disappointed parents. A fissure eroding at the edges with the friction of every passing day until a slip became a crack, became a chasm, and the bright and composed Wilmeth couldn't keep it together anymore. Or maybe it was something else, something chemical. Maybe Wilmeth had become ill. The question that you that you really are working on, I, mean, I think, or at least one of the questions is, she makes it to 48, right? Mm -hmm. And even given her uh, constraints pretty successfully with the family, with an interesting job that probably used some of her capacities, certainly I imagine not all of her capacities, she was arguably a genius. Mm -hmm. So, but the question is really like what finally 
what really finally pushed her over the edge. And I, I know that's what you're exploring. I guess I just wanted to hear a little bit more about that. I think this idea that, you know, she never left a note and that my father never really understood why she ended her life and why she ended it the way that she did. Mm-hmm. Um, again, just a, a bullet to the heart is it's hard, it's easy to mess that up. First of all, you can miss, you can miss. That's why most people shoot themselves in the head, honestly, because it's hard to mess that up. And one of the things my father said to me actually was she was such a good shot. The way he put it was he said, I once saw her shoot, you know, seven cents out of a dime. So at close range, she couldn't miss her own heart. So maybe he thought, you know, she didn't think she would miss. But my father, I think, got to a place where he stopped trying to find an answer for it. And, you know, I say ever the historian, he won't try and speculate in absence of the facts. Uh, that's, that's interesting. I mean, I don't, I, I did study history. Uh, if my undergraduate is in history and like speculation off facts is like, is definitely, is part of what you do. It's not all of what you do, but like looking at source and then saying, well, what does it mean? Cause otherwise we're just looking at documents and documents are boring. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that he, that, I, I understand that he'd say, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not a, ph- I don't, I'm not a philosopher. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to fill in gaps, but in human relations with people that we know, like the coroner report doesn't tell us very much. It's not a very useful, emotional piece of, of history. Yeah. And I think, you know, I wonder if, and you're right, like a lot of what you do as a historian is you, you take what you do know and you try and make a ra- like a, a logical connection, right? As best as you can. And I think he just couldn't parse what happened to her. I, and I wonder if maybe this was just too much of a, of a, of a wound to revisit. Right. Um, and I don't have that. I don't have that weight on me, a generation removed. I, I can speculate. And I also recognize the desire with the unknown to have an answer, right? Humans always want to have an answer. And I think the biggest challenge with you know, the story of my grandmother is that we'll never know. In the mid-1960s, women accounted for a minority of the suicides in the United States. Men were four times more likely to take their own lives. Most women eased their way into it, aided by prescription pills and alcohol, or like Plath, by laying a tired head inside a yawning oven. Some put razor blade to wrist. Only a small percentage used a gun. It is to this day rare for a woman to shoot herself to death, let alone in the heart. So maybe Wilmath left a note after all. Uh, I want to thank you, Elizabeth, for coming and sharing your essay and uh, sharing the conversation. And I know that this piece is going to be published. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, thank you for having me, Ben. This was great. I um, the, the essay is going to come out later this summer in Post Road Magazine. Excellent. So this has been the Fictionist First podcast. Um, and I hope that you enjoyed the story and the conversation. <laughs>